patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone, and welcome to episode 86 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylosky. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I hope you are excited for the upcoming Easter weekend, so an early happy Easter to all of you. Today's conversation with our special guest this week is on a topic that is not only incredibly relevant, but one that is so central to U.S. national security, and really just the integrity of our cyber systems. In particular, I think it's also a larger issue of not only defending our networks, but defending our way of life, and also and the values that we hold dear in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And I truly, truly hope that you will enjoy this conversation as we embark on a conversation about cybersecurity and the wider implications of cyber threats from U.S. adversaries, in particular from the Chinese Communist Party. But like all episodes, I hope that this one will be just the beginning of those important discussions about how we protect our cybersecurity infrastructure and how we protect our way of life and our values here in the United States of America. Now, today's guest is Alicia Fawcett. Alicia is a multicultural technologist, open source analyst, and international expert on cyber policy, digital geo-interference, disinformation, and cybersecurity. She currently works as a freelancer and serves as a foreign interference and disinformation research fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute in Washington, D.C., Alicia is deeply passionate about global technology ethics and serves on the advisory board at the Carnegie Council on Ethics in International Affairs, the U.S. National Cyber Moonshot Committee, and teaches a cybersecurity and international affairs course at the University of Economics, Prague. Her career is credited with vast professional experience, encompassing work within both public and private sectors. Alicia has been published and cited with the Atlantic Council, the National Bureau of Asian Research, Washington Journal of Modern China, India Today, Politico, and Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. She received her MA in International Economic Relations and Diplomatic Studies at the University of Economics Prague and her BA in Economics and Asian Studies at the University of Northern Colorado. And if she wasn't busy enough, she even speaks Mandarin Chinese, German, Italian, and French. All in all, very impressive record, impressive background. I'm very excited to welcome Alicia Fawcett to our program. Alicia, thank you so much for coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we've got a very, very important topic to cover today, all, all kinds of topics under CCP discourse power. And uh, I've, I just find this topic so fascinating, because, not just because of the times, but because it really goes so much into the mechanisms of foreign policy making from the CCP and really just the, the security landscape that we're seeing in our world today. Tell me a bit more about 
yourself and how you really got interested in this topic from the first place. Yeah, so I am a disinformation and cybersecurity expert, a subject matter expert. Um, I work in the private sector and also with various think tanks located in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, I've been learning about China, studying China for the past 10 years. I think it's a fascinating country. Uh, All of their philosophy is different based off of different ideas and interpretations of the world and of foreign policy. So it brings me to our current state of the world and how the U.S. and China view each other on this global stage. Fascinating. Um, It's just, it's a whole discipline in itself. And I don't think anyone, any single person in the world can say like they know everything about it. So it's always like a working area of knowledge. I want to first touch upon a little bit about the definition of discourse power. I think some people have a sense of what it is, but Alicia, can you just elaborate a bit more what discourse power is and why it's important when we talk about the the CCP and Chinese foreign policy? Great question. So historically, we've been looking at two types of power, uh, power within a nation state, so soft power and hard power. So soft power is the power that is used to influence other countries Um, For example, Hollywood from the U.S. or the American lifestyle is exported into other nation states. Then we have hard power, which is military um, and physical on the ground combat. So the new the new um, power for our generation is the discourse power. And this is a sort of power where we are integrating with the media, so social media, the media landscape, and how to use um, discourse in order to influence other nations uh, in terms of um, reaching, reaching a population online or in the cyber realm. And when it comes to just some background on CCP information warfare. I mean, technology obviously has advanced a lot over the last few decades, but how do you think discourse power has really augmented within Chinese foreign policy? And in particular, if you can go a bit more about just even a bit further into history on how the CCP has been able to transmit his message or to try and persuade others or with propaganda and all that. Um, What can you comment about with regards to the CCP strategy on information and information control? Yeah. So the CCP strategy has always been a form of nationalism of telling the China story domestically and internationally since the, um, The invasion of the British back in the 18th century, China has always formed a um, central image within the world. So it's important for the CCP to carry this on and claim uh, the right of of discourse within the international stage. So um, there's something called which is right and power. And this means that China has the right to be 
or the right to speak and be heard. So this is really important for China historically and in the present moment to have a say in the international realm on on how to organize societies and how we live within nation states. And when it comes to China's behavior towards the West in particular, do you think that it's more just the inherent nature of the Chinese political system and its history dating back to thousands of years? Or do you think that it's very reactionary towards you know, the opening of trade or just the acceleration of technology and of, I guess you could, for broader purposes, uh, success, you know, domination of the world and the fact that within the name China, Zhongguo, it means, you know, central kingdom, uh, middle kingdom. Uh, how much do you, th- do you think is reactionary based on Western domination? How much do you think is based on just the inherent nature of China's political system? Yes, I, I think that 80% is based off of legalism, which is a, a political philosophy that China used in order to um, divide up the society, to um, create the standardized tests, which we take now in the, in the U.S. China created a system that was highly bureaucratic and centralized. And so that that system and that history that China has is the same sort of organization that China wants now for the international world and China's right and say and, and pushing this very authoritative, bureaucratic, centralized government and international system. Um, the other 20% does have to do with, you know, acquiring the right of China's territory within the LOC and understanding China's um, power economically as well. So I guess we have a division here between China's right to rise in in Zhongguo, which is center of the world. And then we also have the economic prowess that is needed in order to rise to the center of the world. And when we look back at the history of, let's say, the Cultural Revolution, obviously it was a very tumultuous revolutionary time for China. Uh, This and many other instances really concerns me, just really on the, the, the authoritative nature of China, which obviously goes back to the really central point of why why this topic is so important. And uh, you mentioned the standardized tests. I mean, who who doesn't dread standardized tests? You know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> thank, goodness, th- thank goodness I went through all that several years ago. But anyway, that's kind of a side <laughs> thing. Um, but when you look back at the Cultural Revolution, um, what what part of that that the impact of the Cultural Revolution, do you think, also ties in with that rise in discourse power from the CCP? Um, I believe that, you know, looking at the Cultural Revolution, what was important here was for everybody to be working together to be great, to be powerful. So understanding, you know, China's current censorship, where um, certain social media sites are blocked, or um, certain words or images are not allowed to be used. This is because everybody gives up their right of freedom of speech um, in order to create the stronger nation where people are working together. 
So there's a different idea of what freedom means in China and why an open internet, for example, would not work for China. You know, a lot of it has to do with cross-border data exchange right now in terms of internet laws and where data is sitting on which servers and in which countries. For example, if you're a business working in China, your data has to sit, your customer's data has to sit on servers in China. And there's various other laws that are coming up almost every day on around the internet. And so this is actually making China more closed economically since all of our transactions and economic exchanges are happening in the cyber world. So you can see China starting to close up in terms of all of their laws that they are they feel that are right and just and do not have to abide by open internet laws or open cross-border data exchanges as we do in the West. So you can see a little bit more confidence in terms of uh, knowing that China can censor information, China can require information to stay within the, um, the, or the political boundaries of China itself. So you can definitely see a little bit more vibrato and confidence there. Based on your research of what you've read and what you've seen, what do you think has been the biggest change or biggest form of change in CCP discourse power? Maybe if you were to track since, since let's say, the Cultural Revolution, since that's really such a critical time period, what do you think has been the biggest change um, on, on the CCP side of ensuring that that discourse power remains very, very central to their strategy? Yes. So 100%, it would be disinformation and cyber warfare. So these are two new elements that are added to the the on-the-ground combat um, strategy for the CCP. So if you look at um, some of the new departments that China has created, they have focused on space, psychological operations, and and a propaganda or um, external influence. So you can see even within the Chinese structure that they're moving towards this psychological operations um, momentum. And, and And the reason why is because it's easier to influence the hearts and minds of citizens and cheaper. That uh, to pay an army of internet trolls and create um, sock puppets, which are fake accounts, than to actually go to war, so or or hacking or hiring APT groups, um, advanced persistent threat groups to go and attack another nation's critical infrastructure. So the reason for this and the and the giant shift from you know the propaganda that was um, created domestically and for the CCP to focus on only its citizens within its own country has now moved to other countries, and this is really benefiting China's image and the China story and how they get to um, decide how to tell the discourse of China how the the external um, population or, or other countries view China. So there's a lot more power and control now in 
this cyber space. Indeed, it's just very, very concerning trends and something that obviously has raised the attention of the U.S. government and of other really Western governments and and really just a lot of people who are concerned about foreign policy. And um, so let's kind of go into some of those tactics and those strategies. So Alicia, what would you say, if you could pick maybe the, the biggest two or three kinds of strategies and tactics that you've seen from the CCP, what, what sort of things are they, are they doing to raise their China story and to really push for this discourse power beyond its borders? Yes. So, so there's a lot of things going on, but the top three, I would say, you know, during the pandemic, this presented a great opportunity for China to start using Western social media to influence the perception of where COVID came from and what was the story with, um, with our uh, with our current um, pandemic, and so using COVID diplomacy um, online and and spreading fake news or fake images about other countries, trying to influence other nations to think that it did not come from China. This was a really great opportunity for China to step up and just go for it. And in the past, China held very strongly to peaceful coexistence. So the five principles of peaceful coexistence would be not to meddle in the foreign, uh, in the domestic politics of another nation. Now we see since the pandemic that has completely changed. China is now online and on Facebook, Twitter, creating CCP diplomatic Twitter accounts and pushing fake information, fake news, um, bots, amplifier accounts. And so we see a huge, a huge shift here towards um, interfering within other nation states. So the next thing I would say would be using content farms. So these are also known as marketing agencies. Um, you can see a lot of receipts that the Chinese government has been signing to pay marketing agencies, which are really content farms in other countries. We've seen some coming from even South America to Bangladesh, majority Bangladesh, Indonesia. And so all the fake content that is created is not actually created in China. It's created by a third party. So China is doing this. The CCP is doing this in order to cover up the tracks of where this is coming from. You're not able to trace back or attribute some of these um, fake rumors that are being spread all over the place. You cannot find the VPN of <laughs> of where this information is coming from. So content farms, that's a huge one. Um, and then the last, the last big strategy would be the, um, the, the actual fake bots themselves. So in, um, in Southern China, there's a place called base 311 and it's basically um, lots of, citizens working for the state that are creating fake news, fake bots, and just pushing information that 
is not real. So on top of the content marketing farm, there are these internet public opinion armies that are trying to influence other countries. For example, during the U.S. election, our research team saw a lot of of anti-Trump propaganda or disinformation, fake news being pushed out that was clearly coming from inauthentic accounts from China. Well, thank you so much for that answer, Alicia. I think you've touched upon so many important points here. Um, I want to touch on a couple here. The first is you mentioned about the election. Can you go a bit more into depth of what it is that China intends to do when it comes to these elections? Are they trying to literally pick a president or are they just simply trying to fuel more of that division? And we'll touch upon that kind of civility, that sort of aspect later, but I just want to get a sense of what it is that their intention is when it comes to elections. Because obviously, there's been just been so many fights within our our country ourselves, you know, between the Democrats or Republicans and just pitting Americans together. It's really, really sad. It's sad to see the state of affairs. But I, I want to let I want to hear a bit more about what China intends to do on elections in this case. That's a really great question because our research team started out with, oh, the CCP is basically taking a page from Russia's playbook and trying to divide the society online and create that civil war-like atmosphere on social media, which divides the population. Um, but actually, we didn't find that. We did find a lot of anti-Trump uh, news, fake news, vilifying him and, and certain images with dramatic music, which is a normal thing that this fake news will have music and, and evil eyes coming out of people. Um, but they attacked both sides. So they were going after um, president, presidential candidate at the time, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. What we did find was the American dream. That was the thing that the CCP was trying to tear down and destroy the image that the American dream was not something that should be pushed on the international stage. So vilifying the American dream or justifying why the American dream is not something that other countries should be looking towards they then push the China dream. So we're going back to um, thousands of years ago and the Zhongguo idea of the China story. And so what we see here is instead of a division between two parties or fractions, we see um, the push of the China dream and to push down the American dream. Wow. I mean, I, I just think about how how important the American dream is to a number of people, including my ancestors and potentially your ancestors too. And that's that's like that I think is what makes it really, really serious, I think, is is really just how sentimental the idea of the American dream is and how the CCP is just going straight afterwards. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is about the the, the content farmers, the third parties. Are, are these third parties, are they part of, you know, uh, other foreign governments? Are they part of companies? Uh, what can you t- tell uh, tell us about some of these content farms in terms of who's funding them or who's running them within these other foreign countries out there? 
That's a great question. So the lines are blurred here and that's what, that's what they want are the lines to be blurred. Um, these are just marketing PR agencies. They're fronting as marketing PR agencies and they're taking, um, you know, the, the engagement from China, from, it could be uh, the CCP is saying we would like you to do a project for us, or it could be we're a business in China and we'd like you to do a PR project for us. So on some level, this disinformation and foreign interference is happening in the, the business level, on the business level, and nothing illegal is really going on here. There's no laws saying that you're not allowed to create this content on certain social media platforms like Twitter or Facebook. There's nothing really stopping these transactions from happening on the content farms or, you know, within these marketing PR agencies. Where are the CCP getting their cyber talent from? You know, there's been a lot of talk about the security concerns and the implications of and people stealing technology from the U.S. and other Western countries and other countries that have organically developed that technology, but you know, China obviously has no regard for IP and for for privacy and all that, as you can probably, as anyone anyone can tell. Um, so, uh, are they getting a lot of this talent from people that they have influence, or how how does that kind of hold? Generally speaking, how does that whole dynamic work when it comes to literally getting these kinds of cyber people into those farms and into those centers to to spew out this stuff? They have websites that are are Chinese nationalistic websites where they're trying to recruit patrons, IT patrons to do this work. Um, there's a lot of ideological um, formation of uh, come work for this, the CCP, come work for your, your country, you know, give, give back. So, you know, people are thinking that they're doing something good for their country um, which, you know, how can you say, <laughs> what are you doing? But at the same time, you have these kind of websites that are recruiting. And most of these websites are on the dark web as well. Uh, and then you also have APT groups. So just independent groups, which are advanced persistent threats um, groups. And Chinese, the Chinese government will then contract these groups to do the work. The, the, the cyber talent, like I said. Um, and then the last thing is this, the base 311 um, and a part of the government, the Chinese government is just having these armies. Um, some people like to think that the Wu Mao, which is the 50 cent army, are creating a lot of this content that's being pushed out. And there's a debate in terms of are those just good, are Chinese citizens you thinking they're doing something good for their country or are they paid um, you know, uh, sock puppet creators that are pushing this information out. So there's really a debate in between the nationalistic tendencies and then the actual contracting and financial gains of working for the CCP and creating this content that interferes with foreign nations. When it comes to influence, 
One of the most disheartening stories I read recently was really when I read that the chair of the chemistry department at one of the most historic and most prestigious universities, Harvard University, was indicted by the Department of Justice uh, because he was essentially getting paid by by CCP. And you know, this is just a, a one example of how destructive a lot of these things are. Because um, I. I, I can certainly tell you that when I was in high school, when a bunch of people were in high school, we, we always felt this this whole idea of the pursuit of knowledge, right? The pursuit of knowledge without any kind of – without this world of some kind of financial gain or at least financial gain from other foreign countries, certainly ones that you know have horrible human rights records that, uh, that have no regard to privacy. So using – kind of based on that example here, uh, Alicia, in your view – you know, what's what are the kinds of implications and what are the kinds of effects are there from these bots and from these campaigns that you see all the time here in the U.S. and across the world? Yeah, um, you know, if you look at the the 2020 Taiwan election, you see um, the CCP was targeting college students to make some extra cash to be an influencer online. Um, and in Taiwan, there's a very famous social media site called PTT, which is for college students. And so you could see there was a form of targeting of the CCP and trying to then pay students who are looking for, you know, five bucks. <laughs> when you're a student, you're poor, um, taking on these like, projects that were online where you uh, kind of like freelancing, right? And then being financially rewarded. Now, whether or not they were aware what they were doing or, or, or they were, I don't know, but you do see a lot of, um, you know, people taking those financial incentives and pushing this information, so the, the line here is ambiguous and, and do people really understand what they're doing and have these projects been presented as in like that we are the CCP and you are doing work for us to influence citizens of the United States, right? So um, I this has happened a lot. There's been a lot of espionage within the U.S. and private sector companies and yeah, Harvard, for example, Um and unfortunately, this is something that the U.S. government will have to continue to follow because it's very easy for someone to be working in a high up position, especially in the private sector, and to go under noticed. Uh, my big question to you, Alicia, is where where's the line that we have to draw in the U.S. when it comes to the idea that you can operate as a business to maximize profit – but at the same time, you know the virtue signaling has has to you know has to stop somewhere, right? Um, in terms of what you stand for as an American business, are you American business or are you just a business that doesn't care about any kind of any kind of line between right and wrong? Exactly, that's a really great question. You know, there's lists being made right now, so um, you know I won't work with you. Company X, if you use certain Chinese technologies such as Huawei or any other sort of technologies that have surveillance capabilities or CCP backdoors, 
for example. So American companies are starting to do this and not just American companies, but companies all over the world. So I think in the technology sector, it's a risk for their customers to be hacked or their data to be stolen. And so companies are prioritizing that, right? And so I think in the private sector, we're we're safe in terms of technology. But when it comes to profit and human rights, that's where we're not safe. And that's where we need a lot of work. For example, looking at Hollywood and when Disney shot the movie Mulan in Xinjiang, um, this was based off of profit, obviously, and not human rights. And I know myself and a, and a lot of people I know boycotted watching the movie because of this. So I think there's individual actions we can take as citizens where we are not responding to um, the private sector looking the other way in terms of human rights and, and valuing profit over human rights. But there's really a lot to be done. There's a lot of laws to be written. And there's just a lot of moral and ethics that we as citizens and the society need to decide upon before we can create more lists and more lists in the human rights realm. We've we've mentioned the complexities of this disinformation complex. I'll call it the disinformation complex. It's new. It's a new topic. Right, right. Yeah. I, I, did, I never asked permission from the Eisenhower family to use this, but uh, the disinformation industrial complex to mm-hmm. uh, to kind of put That's this into one. some kind of terminology. Mm-hmm. What, what can you tell us about some of those internal external challenges that China is dealing with right now that they don't want to admit? And maybe some other things that you think are going to come up a little bit later on in the 2020s and beyond? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of challenges that the CCP has ahead, and they haven't convinced the international world right now that the China model is the model that we should be living by and adapting. So they're not there. Chinese soft power has a long way to go. Um, There's still a lot of human rights atrocities that the West knows about, and so people don't believe that the China model is successful right now. So the CCP has tons of challenges. However, if you're looking at authoritarian regimes, for example, Venezuela or some African countries that are adapting the China model, this is really successful for them because they can employ surveillance and not respect human rights or privacy and still accomplish what they want to accomplish. So um, the success has been there, but minimal. Um, So there are many challenges here. Now, in terms of discourse power and foreign interference, China hasn't been that successful. So the Chinese information operations tend to be pretty sloppy. It's very easy to identify the inauthentic assets that China operates. Um, It's very easy to know that it's a fake profile. It follows like the same sort of system. Um, Like Twitter handle will be four letters, four, yeah, four letters and then four numbers. So you see that over and over and you can tell that these are inauthentic accounts. So I don't think the discourse is there for China. I don't think they're making major strides. And a lot of the fake information that they are pushing 
is either uh, pornographic images or military warfare images. And that's just not going to resonate with the American people. <laughs> and it's not going to do a lot to influence them. But China has been developing more videos and video disinformation in terms of deep fakes, for example, using deep fakes as a way of psychological influence and music to evoke emotion and, you know, overall sensationalism, colors, music, things that really break down the barrier, the language barrier between other countries. So you'll see a huge shift to videos. So when China does make that shift, they could be more successful. But right now, there's a lot of challenges. Um, the English is not great. <laughs> Even when China pushes fake information to Taiwan, it's written in the wrong script. So it's written in simplified, not traditional. So there's still a lot of things that, that they're not there yet. How important do you think uh, the partnership between the relations between U.S. Taiwan are going to be uh, in terms of being able to counter the cyberspace? Because you know I, I hear a lot about the Taiwan Relations Act, which is still the standard, but there's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of discussion about how to upgrade that. You know, in terms of the technological side of things. So, what do you want to see from the U.S. Taiwan relations side, so that there is a bit more of a coordinated push against? Uh, this discourse power from China? Great observation. Great question. I would like to see the American government give more cybersecurity capabilities to protect Taiwan's critical infrastructure from China. So I think that's the number one thing that will solve a lot of the influence in Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan has a lot of problems because there's many connections back to China for many many decades. But for China's next or Taiwan's next election in 2024, they need to secure the, their election servers. They don't have this technology they need it from the US. And so the best thing that the US can do is to support Taiwan technically. And uh, one thing that just to kind of really puzzle really the average American or average Westerner, which is um, one of the things that I find so puzzling, and maybe it's something you can comment on, I'll use an example here, which is several years ago, there was this whole thing that where people were making fun of Xi Jinping with Winnie the Pooh, and uh, <laughs> and being being the, the the kinds of sissies that they are <laughs> to Beijing, uh, they were trying to censor this, and I, I just... I'm kind of curious to know, right? I'm kind of curious to know. And they were also censoring this on WeChat uh, accounts that foreigners had. So that's really strange as well. So they're also censoring information that foreigners are using. There was an account in Canada and it was getting censored by the CCP because it was on WeChat, but the person was physically in Canada, which is a whole new level. Yeah, so, and I, I got to ask you, what do you think det determines this kind of sensibility sort of issue? That uh, and it, it's almost like you see something like this, and you just wonder yourselves, like, 
Yeah, I can kind of see why maybe a TV show like Seinfeld wouldn't fly over there. You know, this kind of self-mockery or this... Yeah, yeah. You just wonder how, like, yeah, you know... Obviously, the the serious part of this human rights and the privacy and all that, but I think one unintended and really horrible victim of of this authoritarianism is the sense of humor, that or the really the death of humor almost in in a place like China. It really goes back to that authoritarianism and not offending the leader, where you know in a democratic society such as the U.S., we use humor and satire to challenge citizens to think critically and in a funny way, right? So we use this political satire in order for us to be aware of what's going on and, and how we can change it. And that's a freedom of speech. And that's what's so amazing about, you know, that First Amendment where it doesn't really exist in in Asia. I would say a lot of Asian countries are like this, where you're not able to offend or criticize or critically think about the leader or the government. Right. And and I can just tell people in different parts of the world where there's, there's a level of entertainment that you just can't compromise, you know, in a, in a freer society. And so um, I, I know that I know CCP is not going to heed this, but, you know they they really they they could really up up their 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 humor level obviously which is not going to happen but yeah oh my gosh <laughs> they could have maybe there's so many so many jokes so many unsub jokes that could be happening exactly but this is, goes to show the the contrast between authoritarianism and a and a free society so anyway we'll we'll set that aside but what can you tell us about just the security challenges and the discourse challenges that the CCP poses to the Indo-Pacific, generally speaking, and how that affects our national security standing in that region and perhaps a bit broader across the world? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It China is taking over the region right now um, in terms of pushing, you know, naval power um, claiming islands um, that are disputed between the Philippines and Vietnam. And so you see a lot of on-the-ground operations happening in Asia. Now, you don't see a lot of psychological operations happening, though, in Asia. So that's really interesting to me, where China is targeting the West where the West, you know, we're, we're in a vulnerability right now with the pandemic and, you know, responding to this crisis. China, uh, the CCP is focusing on the West instead of looking to Vietnam or Philippines to influence them <laughs> psychologically. So there's more on the ground activity or on the sea activity happening in this region than what is happening in other countries and influencing, you know, the U.S. or South America, for example. You see Huawei as a really great discourse tool or even soft power, I would consider it, because a lot of Africa and um, South America have been building their 5G networks based off of Huawei so, you know, this is an area where China is still physically engaging um, in, in a sort of on-the-ground combat. 
Now, you can look at Taiwan, and there's a lot of targeting to Taiwan because of the history of Taiwan being founded by a political party in China during, um, you know, during Mao's communism. So it's interesting to me to see if China will make that shift back to the Asian region and away from Africa, North America, South America. Now, Alicia, you know, it's been Fascinating 45 minutes or so covering all these issues. And gosh, we, we probably could take 45 days maybe to, to cover all There's that. There's a detail. lot here, for sure. <laughs> exactly. What sort of policies or legislation or ideas come to mind when it comes to what the U.S. government, the federal government should be pursuing uh, to mitigate the effects of Chinese discourse power and also to be able to bring back that narrative of you know the the international norms that are held based on ideas of freedom and not based on the the china story but based on some kind of freedom and those values that we hold so dear yes so i i definitely have a few recommendations um, the U.S. government really needs to step up in terms of cybersecurity and cyber warfare on the psychological information operations front. So China has various different departments that are already and have been working on, on this area, whereas we're lacking a lot of the discourse power, psychological information uh, operations or online social media operations. Um, it exists, but not to the degree that China is attacking it in that way. So that would be the first thing I would say. You know, we have the U.S. Global Engagement Center with the, the State Department, and um, they're responsible for the the image of the United States and managing that in different parts of, of the world. And so I think that the State Department can really take this um, to another level and make sure that U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. Uh, American image abroad maintains its credibility and its messaging of democratic freedom and everything that is um, available in the United States. So I think that the State Department can play a huge role here. I, I believe there should be cyber diplomats, cybersecurity diplomats um, all over the world working on just cyber issues in a particular country and combating Chinese disinformation in different country and Russian as well. So I think we need to step up and we need to address the issues that are happening right now in the world. Um, and they're online. And so we need we need to update ourselves in that way in order to combat foreign influence all, all around the world and the image on the international stage of, of America, of the U.S. Um, another thing I would recommend is working with social media companies. Social media companies play a huge role in taking down fake information, fake news, um, this is really important for them to step up, step in, and really work with the U.S. government and take responsibility for this, for foreign interference, for influencing um, vulnerable populations. 
um, the Chinese diaspora within other countries, right? Being having the CCP targeting them on on Western media sites. Laws need to be created. New laws need to be created on this. We need to address this legally as well. Um, and yeah, I think the last thing I would say is just for citizens to be aware, to practice cyber hygiene, to know what information they're reading, to check their sources, their facts, and to understand how the online environment works and to just not take um, any information that is presented to them as the truth to really do their homework and really think critically about what they're looking at. Uh, amen. It sounds sounds like you're all ready for a congressional testimony. I wish that I could broadcast this on C-SPAN. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, but yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Uh, that's that's why cool. not the, why not right it's a lot of it's a lot of research that you know I've been holding inside <laughs> uh, well that's it's it's super sure. wonderful you know and that's that's why you know people like yours are so important Alicia in terms of informing us about specifics and just having you know kind of going maybe to your point which is you know understanding cyber which is obviously something that you've dedicated your career to what what is kind of your what are your kind of personal reflections on just you know, the, the trajectory of how, how you've come to pursuing the career that you're in right now with McKinsey and really just maybe your outlook on, on why you think this is reemphasizing why you think this is so important, not just to yourself, but also to, you know, the, the broader, broader humanity perhaps, or maybe a calling to public service that you, you yourself have endeavored yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking that. That's very kind. Um, I believe that the life that we're living, the generation we're living in, we need to understand. I think that's the, the most important word here is understanding and knowledge is power. So knowing knowledge is power, but also perception is informative. So understanding how the U.S., um, society views cybersecurity or views the internet is going to be different than how a country that has been isolated for eternity until recently, China, is going to understand cybersecurity, cyber ethics, and, and the internet. So that's really important to me. And we get into this realm of constructivism, which I'm a big fan of is understanding the history, understanding the philosophy of that country, even implying, you know, some some theories of game theory, economics, and and really being able to work together in the international space as different countries that have different understandings of what the internet is and what security is and being able to to keep that a safe place for everyone being able to have our critical infrastructure secure, being able to express our freedom of speech on the internet for all citizens, maybe not citizens within our own country, but other citizens too. So that, you know, that gets into cross-border data or, or cyber sovereignty, right? Cyber sovereignty is when the nation does not allow certain information to enter or leave on the internet. So we're entering this space where freedom and democracy 
is on a thin line and we're changing. And it's really important for me to understand how that is happening and how we can ultimately create a peaceful society through security. I commend you so much for embarking on this endeavor. And I think this is a great transition into our reflection question. You know, as you're familiar um, with you know, Washington's Farewell Address, I won't quiz you on this this time, uh, maybe next time. Mm-hmm. But uh, Dang it. I, <laughs> you're supposed to have this memorized. You have to you have to have the whole one hour speech memorized. You know, I read it back in high school. I'm not going to lie. It's been a few years. <laughs> um, well, obviously, we have really six ideas or pillars that we've taken out of this, this speech. So which one or which ones do you think are most pertinent to our conversation today and really just the way forward and how we can protect our sovereignty, but also really strengthen the the values that we, we cannot lose at all, the values of freedom, liberty, and opportunity for as many generations as we can possibly spread to. Yes. Um, you know, this is a brilliant speech and so relevant to today, even, you know, Um, I can see a lot of connections between how we're still trying to figure out the world um, now. And Washington really laid down the groundwork for U.S. foreign policy that we're, we're still using today. So it's such an amazing speech. And I'm really glad that you have dedicated the podcast to this speech. Um, I see a lot of things that are important here mentioning sovereignty. And Washington goes into this speech saying that we should avoid, you know, meddling in, in the affairs of other nations. And to me, that's the groundwork for foreign interference, that nations should not be trying to meddle or create conflict within another nation. And I really agree with him on that. And now we're getting into a new form of sovereignty, which is cyber sovereignty. So the same principles apply in what he stated in the farewell address, which is do not meddle in another nation's cyber sovereignty, right? So um, I think that's really important and very, very um, pertinent for today as well. The other thing is is patriotism. This is a... um, a a um, non-partisan issue here for an interference. So Washington in this speech, you know, uh, warned us of creating parties or factions and how that would be really easy for foreign nations or interest groups to go in and basically manage these parties. And and you can see that now. (laughs) You can see that not only we have parties, but we have divided parties. And it's really easy for other countries to come in and meddle within those parties. And Washington said that in his speech, which is pretty amazing to me. And so I think we really have to look at foreign interference, disinformation, fake news. This is a nonpartisan issue and both parties can benefit from it. And as as a whole, in terms of patriotism, we need to adapt strategies, rules, and morals based off of of interference from other countries. 
Wow, that's 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 such an excellent answer. I don't think I can be able to top that <laughs> anytime soon. Um, I, I I really appreciate your kind words to Alicia. Um, this you know the, we we hope that this speech will be a bit more mainstream than it is now. Um, there's I think there's a reason why it's in the National Archives and not just like in you know in a drawer, but on display uh, at the rotunda. And so I, I absolutely agree with you. I think this is something that, you know, despite the, the partisanship and all, and all that, I, I really hope that there's people who are more conscientious about the issues that you raised. Um, and just to really go back, I, I love what you said earlier about how, you know, based on your research, you found that there really is an attack on the American dream. And we all, you know, here in America, we all have a connection with that. And that's what's really, really binding is the the connection that we have with this grander idea. So I, I hope that we pursue that. We, we pursue this idea of more national unity, which is obviously one of the other principles too, and civility as well. So Alicia, I want to thank you so much for your wonderful insight and your research. You know, this is so helpful, not just for myself, but for the audience too. And I hope that you, know, you continue to pursue these endeavors of sharing this knowledge and can doing more research because I, I truly believe that we need people like you to be on the front lines. And uh, I already suggested congressional testimony. I, I'm just saying that can happen. You never know. Um, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to place my bets. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll see. <laughs> um, well, again, thank you so much. And I, I hope that you, you continue to pursue this wonderful endeavor. And I know that, people all across and different from different parties and different viewpoints are really going to really going to love your research. And we look forward to seeing more from you in the future. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you finding this topic interesting and important to begin with and, you know, letting me present the research I've been doing with various think tanks in the private sector. Um, it's great to have, you know, insight on the technological front, in terms of foreign policy and history as well. And that's what's so great about your podcast is taking history and applying it to what where we are in the world at this current moment, because there is so many connections and we don't realize that when we're reading the news every day. So thanks for creating such a wonderful podcast. And it's been such a pleasure to be a guest on your show. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Alicia Fawcett. I learned a lot from her. She has done incredible research on this topic. I hope you will learn more from her with the links down in the show notes below. Once again, make sure you subscribe to Friends and Fellow Citizens for more future content and amazing episodes. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. I'll see you next time.